can turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 51. At least that's what your notes say. Um, you're thinking, man, after last night's message, how does this guy have an extra 20 chapters of Proverbs? I thought God's word was perfect, which it is. I really appreciated that last night. That was a blessing to us. I really, if you want to uh, minister to believers, um, increase their confidence in God's word. And that's what happened last night. That was a blessing. I really appreciated that. I remember one night when I was in seminary early in our marriage, um, Laura and I had an argument. Uh, it was later at night. I really don't remember what it was about. Um, it wasn't loud. That, that wasn't our way, but it was intense. And uh, I uh, got frustrated, and I, I walked out of our apartment and went down the stairs and walked around downtown, the area where we lived, um, for about 30 minutes. Now, I want you to, to think about that a little bit and kind of imagine why a person might do that. Why might you walk out? I suppose there could be, um, you might, you know, maybe, maybe you think, well, maybe you were, knew you were going to sin a little bit more, and so you're trying to eliminate, um, you know, sinning uh, by, by staying in the house. Um, and that would be you give me the benefit of the doubt, if that's what you thought. Because uh, that's not what was going on in my heart. Uh, maybe someone else somewhere has done that. Um, in, in my case, I, I think it was actually manipulative. Um, I wasn't getting my way, so I left the apartment as a sin against my wife. It certainly was not repentant. It was um, vengeful. In God's grace, he worked in my heart and brought me to repentance, and we were soon restored. One of the great blessings of our marriage has been the fact that early on, my wife uh, was far more committed to us being reconciled with each other than I was. Um, I could sleep uh, at night being upset with her. Um, that, was not a, that was not a gift. That was not a good talent to have. Um, my wife could not, and so she would wake me up. <laughs> Craig, aren't we going to get this right? And I'd be like, I just got to sleep. Um, but God in his mercy used that to help us both be committed to dealing with things um, as soon as possible, most times that, that very, very day. In this particular instance that I described you, um, God worked in my heart, and, and I repented. Um, but it was a battle. It was a war. Repentance is hard. It's not natural for us. We need Jesus. I think it's impossible to talk about repentance for any length of time and not include David's psalm of repentance, Psalm 51. That's actually what the reference is supposed to be in your notes there. I'm sure I, I sent them the wrong thing there. Um, it's, it's one of seven penitential psalms um, in, in, the, in the book of Psalms. You have uh, Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, 143. Those are a, a subdivision of psalms of lament. Penitence is kind of one of those old-timey words that is a synonym for repentance. 
And not every psalm gives us the circumstances of its writing, but this one does. So if you're at Psalm 51, you see at the beginning, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Now, David's sin with Bathsheba is recorded in 1 Samuel 11, and the prophet Nathan's rebuke of him is found in chapter 12. So again, I'm going to ask you guys some questions this morning. Um, what do we know about the circumstances of David's sin? Nothing, nothing you say here is going to be too obvious, okay? Pretend that we don't know the story. So what, is, what, is, what do we know about the story of, of David's sin with Bathsheba? Give me, give me one of the elements here. What is one of the details of this story? Okay, he's not where he should be, right? Okay, specifically, where, where, what was going on? Yeah, they were supposed to be, the, the army was at war and David was back at home, okay? So the, the passage actually says this is the time of the year when kings go forth to war. Um, you know, they had particular times of year when they would go to forth to war when, you know, you could get the harvest from the enemy or something like that. And so um, David, this was a time when he should have been doing this. So he's back home, not, when he's, not where he's supposed to be at that time. So that's one, of the, that's one of the elements of the story. What else do we know? Okay, he let his eyes rest on somewhere. He didn't, it wasn't a quick glance. He, he, he longed for this woman. He looked at her. Okay, good. What else? Huh? He sent for her. Okay. Um, uh, and he's the king. Um, so he, he sends for Bathsheba and she comes. Um, I, I, we don't know obviously that she knew why he was sending for her, but when the king calls, you come. What else? Did not go well for her husband. Yeah, in what particular way? Uriah is her husband. What happens to him? Yeah, murder. We've jumped ahead a little bit because we haven't even actually gotten to what, you know, to David's sin here. Um, I, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the bigger issue, not just that he lusted after her, but that he he actually committed adultery with her. Um, huh? He was not repentant right away. Yep, that's the other thing we know too. David um, gets Bathsheba. He commits adultery with her. It's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult section of scripture um, um, because David is the person, you know, he's the king, so he has all the power in this relationship. Um, and, and so, but, but um, David... You know, remember he sees her. He's on the roof. She's bathing. He sees her from his from his palace rooftop. He shouldn't have been there in the first place. Um, he calls her to himself. He commits adultery with her. Then he gets scared and he tries to cover his sin. And remember what he does. I mean, this is before DNA. Okay, remember what he does. He sends for Uriah and has him come home. And then he hey, tell me how the battle's going. I'm really interested. This is you know. Wow, hey, why don't you go to your house? And Uriah is a man of integrity, and so he thinks, I can't. I can't go enjoy my wife while everyone else is, all the other soldiers are out in the field. And so he um, lays at the doorstep, I think, of the servants' quarters and sleeps there. And David hears that, and now he's really nervous. Oh, boy. He thought he was going to be able to pawn off this, this pregnancy from Bathsheba on, on Uriah. And so he gets some... Um, drunk, and Uriah still doesn't. And so David decides that what he's going to do is send Uriah. I mean, the, the, the utter coldness of this move, that, that he sends Uriah with a note 
that is his own execution. Uriah doesn't know it, seal of the king's ring. He takes it to Joab, and Joab is told, put Uriah in the front of the battle and so that he'll die. And that's, that's what happens. Uriah dies. Um, Nathan, the prophet, um, probably a year later, confronts David using this great story about the poor man's little ewe lamb. Remember that? This guy has one lamb, and this rich landowner has all these lambs, and someone comes to visit the rich landowner, and so he takes the one little ewe lamb, which is more like a pet to this person, and you know, David gets self-righteously angry. The guy who did this should die. And Nathan says one of those great passages in Scripture, you are the man. Psalm 32 is a passage that we're going to get to in our series. But listen how to David describes his feeling about not confessing his sin. In Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Unconfessed sin is miserable for the believer. It should be miserable for the believer. David teaches this, but we, we actually all know this from experience, don't we? All of us have hidden sin rather than confess it, or we have not admitted it quickly, and we've been miserable. Unless you harden your conscience and you resist the Holy Spirit's work, so David confesses and repents in front of Nathan. And how does Nathan respond? In, in 2 Samuel 12, 13, he says this. Listen, listen to this, because I'm going to ask you a, a question about this verse. I, I want you, is there anything odd about Nathan's response here? In 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, what's odd about that response from Nathan? The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Do you guys remember the Old Testament law? What was the punishment for adultery? Capital punishment. What was the punishment for murder? Death again. <laughs> David deserves death twice over here. He murdered and committed adultery. How in the world can Nathan wave it all away? How can he claim that God has put away David's sin? And the gospel answer is that God didn't just sweep David's sin under the carpet. He placed it all on his son, Jesus Christ. David repented, and God forgave through the future death of Jesus Christ, just like he forgives your sin and my sin. So Psalm 51, let's look at David's psalm of repentance. It's written when he is repentant about his sin with Bathsheba and his sin against Uriah. So the first thing we see here in verses 1 and 2 is that David owns his sin. David owns his sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. We find all these words about cleansing. He wants cleansing from transgressions. He wants uh, cleansing from his iniquity. He says, my, my sin. He, he has the personal pronouns that are used here, David is owning his sin. In verses three through six, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David begins his words of confession here, and personal pronouns show his culpability. This is not a psalm of excuse. David doesn't justify his sin. Now, imagine, though, that David did excuse his sin. Are we, are we in a tornado warning here? or what? I don't know what this is here. Is, can we ignore it? I don't mean, that's what... I mean, honestly, that's what my wife and I normally do. We hear like, okay, whatever. I'm not sure exactly what, but... So, I mean, if it gets really loud, if someone comes in here breathlessly telling us to take shelters, we'll do that. I don't even, I don't even know where we... Where did, somebody look at the map? I don't even know where we go, so... <laughs> We could have a bunch of us go in different directions here. That wouldn't be good. Okay. All right. Sorry. Back to uh, the passage here. Um, So what excuses? If David wanted to make excuses about his sin here, what excuses could he have made? Huh? She wanted to be seen. What's up with Bathsheba, you know, bathing on the roof? Show a little modesty here. He could have blamed her, right? What else? I mean, honestly, I, I mean, let's, let's not kid ourselves here, okay? You guys are acting like you don't know how to make excuses for your sin. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what David would have said. I mean, that is so far from me, Craig. I don't, I think we're all pretty good at this, okay? So maybe, you know, dig a little deeper here, figure out what might... David have said. He blames Bathsheba because she's on the roof. What else might he have done? Huh? Okay, he could have said, I don't know, I didn't really check. I don't know if she's married or not. He could have done that, I suppose. What else? Huh? I'm the king. I mean, God has been blessing me. My ministry is thriving. I mean, look at what the nation is doing. God's going to allow me to do little things like this. I mean, that's not you know, a big deal. He could have made that excuse, absolutely. Aha, there we go. She should have said no. I mean, yes, I was wrong, but she should have said no. Okay, he definitely could have made that excuse. What else? Anything else? Yeah, for Uriah just gone home that night. I mean, I made it easy for him. What's the deal? Wouldn't be in this issue right now. I mean, I could have confessed it later. You know, the baby gets born, Uriah thinks it's his kid, everything could have been fine. God messed up his plans. He could have blamed Joab, right? I mean, Joab, I told you to kill somebody, you should have said no. You should have given me some pushback on that. And maybe, maybe if David was making excuses, he should have said, God, you shouldn't have allowed this to happen. I mean, I was attempted above what I was able I thought, God, I thought you cared about me more than that. But David doesn't make those excuses. That's what's amazing about Psalm 51. Instead, David owns it. He calls it sin with several different synonyms, transgressions, iniquity, sin. He's not in any way downplaying it. It's it's ugly, and it was him. He owns it. And the truly repentant don't make excuses. They don't blame shift. They take responsibility for their sin. Others may have sinned too, but they don't care about that. They care about getting their own heart 
right, getting their own sin right. So David owns his sin. Secondly, David turns to God. He sees the against God nature of sin. David turns to God. In Psalm 51, 1 and 2 again, what his first words, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He pleads with God on the basis of God's character. God, you're steadfast, you're, you're, you're loving, you have abundant mercy. And that's why David can beg for cleansing. Verse 4 explains the against God nature of a sin. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, we'll explain this here. David is, is not saying that he didn't sin against anyone else. In fact, again, no answer is too simple to, to, to hand out here. Who else had David sinned against? Okay, Uriah. Bathsheba, Joab, his real, yeah, his real wife, yep, wives, families of you know Uriah's family. In fact, um, Bathsheba's grandfather, uh, you might know this, was Ahithophel, who was one of David's advisors. David sinned against him. Um, he certainly, as we said, sinned against the, Joab, the commander of his military, by involving him in this sin. However, what makes sin sin is that it's against God, not that it's against others. But, but David does hint at his culpability towards Uriah in verse 14. Psalm 51, verse 14, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So we, we, find, we, we think of it as just about Bathsheba, but David here is talking about the fact that he murdered somebody. That's what verse 14 is about. That gets us to verse 5, which can kind of have a confusing meaning. Um, what does David mean if you're in, in, in Psalm 51, verse 5, you see, uh, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So what does David mean in verse 5? Um, Verse 5 is not saying that conceiving a child is sin. What David is doing is explaining that sin is passed on to every one of us. Uh, in other words, sin is in our souls, not our surroundings. That's, that's what we find in, in verse 5. And in fact, it's interesting, um, he says that his sin was passed on through his mother. Sometimes we think that we have this idea that sin is only passed on through the father. It's passed on through both parents. Um, that's what two sinners have, two you know, two cows have little cows. I think farmers call them calves. I don't know, something like that. Um, you know, pig, two pigs have piglets. Um, two sinners, guess what they have? They have a little sinner, okay? Um, that's what David means in verse 5. There, there, there's some, you know, theology going on there. That The bottom line is um, we sinned in Adam, and every one of us has a direct connection to Adam um, through our parents and their parents and their parents all the way back. David is saying, I've been a sinner from birth. I came by this honestly. This is, this is who I am. Um, he's always been a sinner. And he understands that his sin was against God. The repentant person cares that they have sinned against God, that they have displeased their master. That is, that fundamentally, that is supposed to be the, the, the posture of a repentant person. That it's not about the fact that 
I'm embarrassed or other people found out or it hurt other people, even though that's a concern. It's actually the fact that it was against God. That once again, I'm raising my fist and saying, I'll be my own God. That's what makes sin, sin. Thirdly, David pleads for cleansing. Verses 1 and 2, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So David knows that he is a sinner and that his sin makes him unholy. It makes him unclean. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, but do you think about sin that way? That your sin actually defiles you. Sin is not just a mistake. Uh, it's not something you do. It's not a, you know, some people call it an oopsie or something. It's not like, it's not like riding a bike or eating a meal. It's not a neutral activity. Sin actually defiles you. It contaminates you. It dirties you. It pollutes you. It stains you. Now understand, I'm not talking about others' sin against you. Sometimes a person is so violated by another that they feel great shame and disgust and even a defilement in themselves. But, but that's not how scripture talks about sin. Someone else's sin cannot make you unclean. So if you think back to a time in your life when someone else violated you in just a egregious, terrible terrible way. Just know that God's grace is sufficient and that you're not responsible for their sin against you. What, what Psalm 51 is talking about is David's own sin defiled him. Not someone else's, David's own sin. That's what's fouled his soul. That's what's made him impure. And part of repentance is realizing this. So David pleads for cleansing. And he knows that only God can cleanse him, that he can't cleanse himself. In fact, in pleading for mercy, David is essentially claiming that God's mercies outnumber his sins. That's what David's saying. He's saying, I can ask for more mercy because I know the God of mercy has way more mercy than I could ever use up with my sins. That's what David is saying here. What's the basis of David's plea for mercy? We saw it in verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Notice he doesn't say, be gracious to me because you did make me king. Be gracious to me because I've actually done a lot of good things for you. He says, God, be gracious to me because of your character, your loving kindness, the greatness of your compassion. It's because of that that you can blot out my transgressions. David is not focused on any merit he might have. He says, my only plea is the fact that I serve a God who is full of compassion and mercy. And that's why I can come to him and, and admit my sin and beg him for cleansing. Verses 7 through 12 pick up the theme of verses 1 and 2. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. 
Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David's uncleanness here comes with some other effects. So what else is David experiencing in verses 7 to 12 because of his defilement? Um, If you look at verses 7 to 12 again, you hear that David had become deaf to the voice of God. Let me hear joy and gladness. Um, He wants to hear joy and gladness again. Sin defiles us, but it also deafens us. In verse 12, we learn that defilement brings sadness. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David wanted his joy restored. Joy comes after repentance. Sin must be forsaken. Then we see that David commits to change. David commits to change. In verses 13 through 15, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So this is a sign of repentance, too, that David commits to change. If a sinner is just sorry but not interested in changing, then maybe they aren't repentant. Now, this is family camp, so most of you here are experienced parents. Have you ever made your kids say sorry to each other? You know, you're trying to get them to reconcile. Some of you are laughing already, okay? Because you know where that's going, right? Um, you know, my, I remember my, my dad making my brother and I, uh, you know, look at each other in the face, and then we had to you know, just you know, say we were sorry, and we had to hug each other. Those are some very aggressive hugs, I will tell you that. Um, sometimes. <laughs> Uh, sometimes you, you, know, you, you, you make your kids say sorry to each other, but you know their hearts aren't in it. They're still internally defending themselves or excusing themselves. They're doing what you want, but just because you're making them do it. And I, I think it's probably still worthwhile to make them, but don't be under any illusions that saying you were wrong alone means repentance has taken root. Sometimes they're saying it through clenched teeth, right? Do you want to change? You can't have repentance if you actually don't want to change. How does David show his desire to change in verses 13 through 15? Look at Psalm 51, verses 13 through 15. How does David show his desire to change there? I'm sorry, what? He wants to teach, okay? He wants to teach sinners. He wants to teach the rebellious. So he's willing to do that. That's one of them. What else do we see there? He wants to sing of God's righteousness again. He wants to praise God. So, so we have David wanting to teach sinners what he's learned. Hey, I blew it. God, I want to teach sinners about your mercy. I want to teach them about my, my, my sin and how gracious you've been. I don't want them to make the same mistakes I've made. He's gone down the path. He can warn them. So in other words, his repentance isn't just this thing that he you know, keeps to himself. 
Obviously, in this situation, it's very public sin. Nathan the prophet confronts him. Um, but David is like, I'm going to use this to teach other people. I think sometimes that's kind of, I mean, we're willing to repent. We're willing to, to change. We're willing to be sorrowful. But the idea of, of later admitting ways that we've blown it so that someone else could learn, um, it's maybe a a step too far for some of us. But it's not for David. David wants to teach other sinners what he's learned. And he wants to praise God's righteousness. Um, his lips had been sealed for a year, essentially. Now he wants to praise God. So the change in David is warning others and praising God. They, they presuppose that David is not the same, that he has changed. And of course, this is based on David receiving forgiveness. In verse 12, he says he wants the joy of his salvation restored. So what I want to do here is read a biblical account, and I want you to listen and explain to me why it's not repentance. So you can, you can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. I'll read this out loud. This will be a very familiar story to you very quickly. Um, but I'm going to read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 4 through 25. And then I want you to, as I read this, notice some reasons why this person here, it's clearly not repentance, okay? Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, go depart down from among the Malachites, lest I destroy you with them. For he showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites. Uh, from Havilah, as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the ox and the fatlings and the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the, in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. So, you look at that passage. How do we know that Saul was not repentant? How do we know that Saul was not repentant? He made excuses. Okay, what specific excuses did he make? Yeah, he blamed the people. What else? Contradict. Uh, sorry, who, who said that? Was that you, Laura? Did you say that? Did you guys know that Laura got engaged two days ago? Nathan? You, you, yeah, that's, this is great. I think that's congratulations, actually. I think that's pretty exciting. Pretty good. I was waiting for one of you to answer a question this morning so I could point that out. I just think that's, that's pretty exciting. So good stuff. She's, she's from our church. We're very excited for them. So um, I forgot what question I was asking here. Okay. Uh, why isn't this repentance? Okay. Yes. He, he, uh, what, what specifically excuses did he make? Hmm? Yeah, we, we, were, we were planning. We kept the good sheep because we were planning to sacrifice them. Okay. So God said to destroy them all. Um, this is, this uh, Amalek was under what's called the ban, so everything was supposed to be destroyed in it as, a, um, uh, as an offering to God. It was all supposed to be destroyed. And they said, no, no, we'll save some of the good stuff. And then he said, well, it was actually for sacrificing. May or may not have been true, um, but certainly was disobedient. I like, I like at the end, what does he, what does he say there? In, he says, um, I, I feared the people. So even after he admits, he supposedly says, I sinned, he, he says, I, I, did, I did disobey. Yes, I did sin. But it was because I feared the people. So even then, he's still making an excuse. He's essentially saying any king would have done the same. I mean, that's what, if you'd been in my situation with all the people saying this is what we should do, that's what you would have done. And it, it, it is interesting to me how relatable scripture is to us, isn't it? I mean, okay, you and I have never been a king of Old Testament Israel, but haven't you made some of these same excuses? Hey, I, I was trying to do the right thing, um, and I, my intentions were good, and actually, uh, you know, I, I, it, I was in the room there, and it seemed like it was going the wrong way, and I just was trying to go along with the room. I mean, th these people were the ones who were wrong. I mean, we, we've all made these types of excuses. Again, in David's psalm of repentance, when he finally repents, it's just, it's excuse-free. It's not there. Then we find here in verses 16 and 17 that David gets to the heart. David gets to the heart. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, this is why it's sometimes hard to see if expressions of repentance are true repentance in another's life. A person can have activity, but not actual repentance because penitence is a hard thing. And I, I'm not saying that so that you and I can get out and decide that we can grade other people's repentance. That's not actually the idea in Scripture. We're actually supposed to give people the benefit of the doubt. If they say they're repentant, we assume they are. But this is why it's so difficult in our own hearts, is we can do some things that look like penitence, and we're actually not. David here offers a crushed heart. Broken is a, a word that means broken in pieces. Contrite here means, means crushed. 
So what does it mean to have a crushed, broken heart? It, it means at least humility, a heart that has no pretensions, that is no longer concerned about image. So David starts verse 16 by claiming that he would sacrifice if God delighted in it. I thought God did delight in it. This is the Old Testament. Literally millions of sacrifices were made in the history of Old Testament Israel. Millions. So what is David saying here? Why wouldn't God delight in sacrifices? Because sacrifices can just be an outward exercise. God wants sacrifice that comes from a heart of worship. He's not, it's not a condemnation against sacrifice, but noting that heart and spirit must be part of true sacrifice. It's like the prophet Hosea said in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God, through Hosea the prophet, says, I sent these prophets to crush you, to break you, because I, wanted to, I, I love you. I don't, want, I don't want these sacrifices if your heart is not in it. And then David expected God to forgive and prosper him in verses 18 and 19, to forgive or prosper him. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So some, some biblical critics um, looked at these last two verses and speculated that they were added later, that David didn't actually write them. Um, it does seem like a little bit of a transition, a hard transition between verses 17 and verse 18. But verse 19 mentions right sacrifices, which, mention, which matches verse 16. I obviously believe that this is original, and this is part of Scripture, that God's word is perfect. They could be a reflection of David's expectation that in the future, God would bless Jerusalem because of their repentance. So David goes from himself and broadens it out to all Israel and says, God, you will bless us because of our repentance. Or it could also be that David expects that the forgiveness of his sin, since he's the king in this prime position, will bless the city. Jerusalem is a symbol of God's love for Israel. And if God causes good in Jerusalem, it will be good for David too. Uh, what we find here is that David doesn't expect that he needs to be in mourning for the rest of his life over the sin. That he, he fully expects God to forgive him. And that, that if God forgives him, he ultimately will, this is Old Testament economy, will prosper him. Um, so God will prosper Jerusalem. There's a, a lot of meat in this psalm about repentance. It's, it's my go-to um, psalm in my own life and when I counsel others. I think if you spend a lot of time in Psalm 51, you will get better at repentance. Now, we've, we've spent two days on repentance. Uh, and I, I, I want you to understand here, repentance is sober, but it's not awful, okay? Repentance is actually amazing. David pleads for mercy because he knows. 
he knows God is merciful. His intimacy with God will be restored. He's, he's um, penitent, but he doesn't do penance. Do you understand the difference there? David is penitent, he's, he's repentant, but he doesn't do penance. He's not, he's not trying to earn God's favor. It is God's nature to forgive and restore because your sin was paid for by Christ. So come clean, believer, come clean and enjoy intimacy with God. That's repentance is ultimately not awful. It's amazing. It really is. All right. Thank you.